Dotnet Rocks, episode 1090, with guest Todd Gardner. Recorded Thursday, January 15th, 2015. And then, so the other guy says, have you ever watched a movie in the 70s where the camera just cuts in on the conversation? (laughs) (laughs) Most of us just take the camel into town to get girls. (laughs) What? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, jokes you can tell only with the punchline. Only with the punchline, yeah. How are you, man? I'm fine. You know, one thing after another. I got nothing to complain about. Nobody's listening anyway. Okay, well, I've been uh, writing code up a storm here, man. Oh, nice. I got a story for you. Yeah. You want a little story? A little side story? So, uh, I don't want to give too much away, but basically, I'm using an app for Windows that, you know, is one of the... There's a certain class of app that you have to run on a PC. Right. You know, things... Not everything runs on a phone. Not everything runs on a tablet. Audio software for the studio is one of those things. Yep. You know, you just need some horsepower. Video editing, yeah, you want the screen space, you know? All right. So anyway, I look, see if I can crack the file format just because I want to be able to copy some stuff out of one file and put it in another. So I dragged this, you know, arbitrary file name that into a text editor. And the first two characters I see are P and K. Hmm. What does that tell you? Mm. Uh, compression? Yeah. Zip. Yeah. It's a zip file. So I rename it zip. Boom, folders, XML files, nicely laid out, nicely indented, easy to understand. Wow. And guess who's a hero? Me. <laughs> Genius. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, come on, make it a little bit difficult for me, will you? The zip file? Really? Yep. Just and, zip file. and then, you know, you just I just unzip it mess around with the xml plug this there and that there and the other thing right there and rezip it boom done that's an apps awesome. like no problem yeah and suddenly you're magic again suddenly i'm magic again who Good knew one. zip files could be so powerful anyway that's my story of geeky awesomeness uh i got something else for you for better no framework so oh. let's roll the music <laughs> All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, I've sort of been going back and forth between uh, Visual Studio things and uh, some Azure features. And this is an Azure feature that um, was rolled out last year, 2014, Application Insights. Oh, yes. Yeah, so this is telemetry for your website. Mm -hmm. And there's a great portal that you can just hook stuff up and copy some JavaScript into your page and... All of a sudden, numbers start appearing in the cloud. It's just a wonderful thing. <laughs> uh, if you go to tinyurl.com slash application insights, there's a nice Channel 9 video there. It's very short. Yeah, it's it's good. It's good stuff. Just a way of thing, being able to see more about your app. I think it's one of the most compelling features going into the cloud here is the instrumentation level is, by default, substantially higher. It's just getting so easy, man. Yeah really is. And setting all this stuff up on-prem is not that simple. No, it's not. <laughs> yeah. The fact that you can click a, a button, boop, 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 in Azure, and all of a sudden you get this stuff. It's Another not- reason why Scott Guthrie should be president of the United States. <laughs> 
I'm sure he'll be thrilled to hear that. <laughs> or at least CEO of Microsoft someday. Uh, I think he's got an even better job. He and the CEO clearly see eye to eye. Yeah. And yeah, somebody yeah. else gets to do that work. Yep. Yep. We like him doing just what he does. He does a great job of it. <laughs> All right, well, there you go. Uh, Know it, learn it, love it. Richard, who's talking to us today? Grabbed a comment off of show 1050, the one we did with Mr. Miguel Castro. We were talking about MVVM on the web. And, you know, one of the big chants that Miguel had in that show was this, there's not one right way to do things. Right. And people really resonated with that. There's a lot of comments of several people saying, I was screaming into the air, yes, 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 through this show. Yeah. Uh, But this particular comment is from Richard Clemens who says, uh, the most valuable bit of wisdom Miguel brings up in this episode is anyone who says, this is the only way to do this, is wrong. Right, exactly. This goes double for any tech less than a year old. A few years ago at the tech cocktail event, I had a rather drunk business guy, not sure what he actually did, other than he (laughs) wasn't a developer, tell me, .NET web developers are outdated. Everything was going to move to knockout JS and no JS, and in a year, you'll be hard-pressed to find a job. And I was working on an Angular project at the time, and for the first time, I can honestly say and fully agree that a pure spa app of any size quickly becomes hard to manage. So, yeah. Man, last time I looked, everybody still got a job. So. Great big yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, Richard, besides having an awesome name, you're also going to have a .NET Rocks mug. It's on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps because we've got them for iOS, Windows Phone 7 and 8, Android, and Windows 8. And that brings us to Todd Gardner. Todd H. Gardner is the president and co-founder of TrackJS, a JavaScript error reporting service for modern web applications. He's been building JavaScript web apps for many years for enterprises and startups, and knows too well how they break. He lives in Stillwater, Minnesota. Emails Todd at TrackJS and tweets at Todd H. Gardner. Welcome, Todd. Hey, hey, thanks for having me on. This is one of those fortuitous things that we got to talking in a, in a hotel bar in London over... Uh, as, as things happen, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, just got to talking. I guess you and Richard had been talking before, but you, we're, you, you just laid this crazy story on me about duck punching and uh i was like you know this is this is definitely dot net rocks material (laughs) yeah so richard i had been talking for uh at a couple of prior conferences he'd helped me kind of work through some things for my business but uh we were out in london um for uh for a conference and i was out there talking about this practice in javascript and a few other languages called duck punching right and so that's that's not about actually lifting waterfowl out and, and hitting them. Yeah, well, I think we need a disclaimer there. Please don't punch any ducks. No, no ducks <laughs> were harmed in the making of .NET Rocks today, nor <laughs> should they be. Yes. <laughs> we love ducks. All right, so what does it mean? So, so duck punching is this practice of manipulating the base level objects of, of the browser to do other things. So it could also be called... Um, uh, monkey patching or gorilla patching or gorilla patching that there I have an interesting story about how this name came to exist huh. but wh- whenever you go in and you're changing what a function does um, that can be called duck punching there was an another term that we used um, that was a little less uh, ominous wasn't it that we it was like f- fill, polyfill is that it 
Yeah, so polyfill is a is a way of using duck punching to do something valuable. So like a lot of a lot of listeners would have heard the term uh, polyfill because we have to deal as web developers, we have to deal in this really hostile environment of like all these different web browsers that have implemented these base level APIs in different ways. Right. And so the way to kind of normalize that and make that whole environment a little less hostile for us is we use polyfills to say, okay, I know not all browsers have implemented console.log, but I'm going to go ahead and duck punch onto the base level API what a base level console.log will do. And I'm going to do it on all of the browsers so that I have a common baseline to work in. Wasn't that modernizer that was the big polyfill tool? Yeah, so so Modernizer is closely related to all this because Modernizer has all of the tests to figure out whether or not the browser supports these different pieces of functionality. Ah. And then there's an, a really great community around Modernizer that has all of these different plugins that lets you polyfill for the functionality when it might not exist on a browser that you want to support. Cool. All right, so basically what's going on here is your JavaScript says console.log, but duck punching is taking over, hooking console.log and doing something else entirely different if it wants to, right? Well, yeah, you, you could absolutely do that. So in, in JavaScript on the web, there's nothing sacred about these native functions that the browser gives you. And Richard, this is where I ordered a double scotch <laughs> right here and said, tell me more, <laughs> please. Yeah, so there, there's nothing sacred about these base-level functions. They appear as JavaScript, and you can manipulate them in JavaScript just like you could do anything else. So, for example, as like a quick test, if anybody's, you know, I imagine everybody's sitting in front of a web browser. If you pop open the console tools and type in console.log equals a function that routes its message to alert and then save that, go ahead and do a console log, and now all your console logs are popping alerts. Right. You can just manipulate them to do, this is a fairly, you know, innocent thing to do that's just kind of annoying, but you could use this to do all kinds of base level changing of behavior. You could, uh, in the case of polyfills, normalize behavior across browsers. In the case of instrumentation, like a lot of the stuff we do with Track.js, we can use this to instrument common JavaScript applications, or you could use this for malicious intent and get in there and change what functions do to steal information. Right. And and this is what got my hackles up. But of course, you obviously have to allow that and what, you know, website in their right mind is going to do that uh, for ill unless they get hacked or something. But let, let, let's bring it back to the security context. What level of trust or permission does the duck punch have? <laughs> well, essentially, <laughs> if I can get if I can get my script onto your page in any in any way, I have access to do this to the DOM. But you do have that DOM firewall, for lack of a better word. I mean, the sandbox of the DOM. You can't reach into my hard drive and start pulling files around and overwriting stuff, right? <laughs> right, for, for sure. Yeah. And uh, you can sandbox this kind of thing. Like if, I, if a malicious script was loaded within an iframe, obviously it's constrained to the DOM of that iframe and it can't break out. But if, let's say you loaded a script from a CDN. Let's say you're loading jQuery and you choose to load it from from some CDN out there. Right. If that CDN was compromised, or if you, or if I'm the owner of that CDN and I'm just going to use my CDN as a front for malicious activity, I can change that jQuery source to add all kinds of instrumentation to your app without you knowing anything about it and steal all of the keystrokes from your users. Interesting, yeah, of course you could. And there's really no way you would know. 
No, as long as I include a valid version of jQuery, so all of your stuff still works. And then I have a little bit of my code that sniffs your user's keystrokes and then maybe sends a beacon to some URL buried as like a one-by-one one transparent GIF. Like you would never even see that unless you're looking for it. Right. I'm thinking this plus signal R equals a really fun weekend. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, yeah, no, you, you could wreak a lot of havoc or have a lot of fun and gain a lot of insight. I mean, like the console log thing is a perfect example. People do leave their console log messages in JavaScript, right? You know, so you can say, I mean, forget about console log. How about just a function? You know, how about something that they were wanting to call that you can just hook? Mm hmm. I mean, tell us, tell us what the, what could go wrong here? <laughs> let's, let's just put that out there. What could go wrong and how? Well, so there's a lot that can go wrong and there's like a lot that can go right. So um, when you're manipulating these base level functions, you obviously need to be very conscious of who's going to be calling you. And so whether or not you're doing what, it depends on what your intents are when you're doing this. But if I'm going to replace, say, add event listener with some other implementation, I better be sure that the arguments that I take in, I pass them along correctly and attach the appropriate events through to the real underlying function. Otherwise, the app just isn't going to work at all. And it'll be obvious that I got involved and destroyed the whole environment. Right. But I can do all kinds of interesting things if I just augment that behavior. Like, for example, what if I just want to, in, in our example or of uh, in the example of track.js, what we do is we actually listen or we wrap a function passed into add event listener in a try catch handler for you so that we can catch errors coming off of your callbacks and get a bunch of extra information about them. And we do that by duck punching these low level functions and adding these wrappers in place. And so in our case, we're adding extra instrumentation and it's totally transparent to our customers that we've duck punched in this way. On the more dangerous side, I've been a part of some projects where in order to add, say, a cross-cutting concern to their application, they've changed how something behaves at a low level. Like, let's say you wanted to, um, you disagreed with how a date should be formatted for a particular use case. You could go ahead and just duck punch directly onto the JavaScript date object and change what the formatter the syntax of two ISO string does yeah. to match what your system does. That's very cool. That might match like what your server expects, but as a, a new person coming onto your team or somebody else who wants to interact with your app, you've just broken the core JavaScript in a very subtle but fundamental way that will be very hard to track down that bug. Yeah, I think we're going to end up on the security conversation side of this thing over and over again. Like, yeah. do we need to protect against this? I guess that's the question. Well, so it's definitely not a high vulnerability kind of thing. Right. But it depends on what, on how you're building your app. If you're, whenever you're bringing assets onto the page, you're basically making some security decisions for your end customers. Right. right? And so if you're going to bring in your, um, host all of your assets, all of your JavaScript files off of your own server, it's fairly, um, under well understood that, hey, your server needs to be fairly locked down. You can't have people getting in there and hacking it and that sort of thing. Right. But a lot of people will deploy their assets to other places now. Yep. They'll either deploy it to a faster, you know, just Apache or Nginx server somewhere else because they can get more throughput out of it. Make sure you have like the proper security around it. 
or maybe they're going to push it to a cloud provider, like they'll push it to Amazon S3. Well, Amazon S3 has some permissions things around it, and it can be kind of confusing when you and you can accidentally make things public. So yeah. how do you, uh, you need to make sure that you are properly securing these assets in whatever mechanism they're getting delivered down to the page. Right. And if you're outsourcing the hosting of those assets to some sort of third-party CDN, uh, you got to make sure that you're trusting them and that they're, their security procedures are up to what you expect because you're not just, it's not just about a bunch of static files out on a website. This is a core security entry point into your customer's data. How does a, a cross site scripting attack compare or relate, or is it the same? Well, so a cross site scripting um, would be a vector that you could deliver this kind of attack through. So if your app was vulnerable to a cross site script, as in I can, through some input on your page, I can enter my own arbitrary script, what I could do is I could use that vector to load, um, to either do this duck punching attack directly, or to load a script from my own sources that do this duck mm. punching. And then anywhere that my script would run for any of your other users, I could steal data from them in this way, right. but just listening to their keystrokes. Mm -hmm. So it's a cross-site scripting vulnerability to allow an external person to exert code to take advantage of duck punching to manipulate your site. Right, right. Without that vulnerability, it's still all up to you and yeah. the people you trust as to where duck punching could be abused. Right. right. And, and so really the point I wanted to make around security with all of this is that a lot of people look at their .js files as, you know, it's just a static asset. Like, I don't, I don't care. It's not my database, whatever. Yeah. You need, to, you need to be more conscious of that because it is this avenue to your customer's data. I mean, it's no different than if somebody hacked... Uh, version of the .NET framework so and inserted additional code as well. Right, right. So somebody could go in and, you know, compile a custom version of the framework to like steal data. The likelihood of that, I would say, would be significantly lower. They'd actually have to have access to your box and then right. know that you're running .NET and then know to inject this thing into, you know, the right place to get this whole thing to come about. Whereas JavaScript is a little bit more uh, widespread and it's much easier to inject this um, onto the page to get access to somebody's, you know, application. So you almost wonder if you shouldn't have some checksum mechanism or something around any script you're loading. It's like, yeah, I, I want you to, to include this script. Here's the checksum I expect for it. Ooh, that's an interesting idea. Yeah. I wonder how you could pull that off. Yeah. I said, it, yeah, but it just sort of occurred to me. Like, I, I want to know the bits. I mean, it's pretty common in, in downloading tools and stuff like that. It's like, here's the file of download. Here's the expected checksum. So if the download site messes with it, you'll know right away. Or a hash, essentially a checksum. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that would be really interesting to, uh, especially for like CDN resources, to know the hash value of this value of jQuery that you've you know manually looked through and you can verify is good. I mean, right now we're just including the version number of jQuery in the file name. A checksum would be a much more assertive way. Not, I mean, not just to avoid the, the, the security exploit, but if somebody upgrades jQuery and changes it on you, you know, your app would now know right away. It's like, hey, this is not the same file. I don't know if it's security breach or you got an upgrade. It's unexpected or something like that. You'd have more certainty. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But even at a baser level, there's just the... Um you know, add development time. How many times have you brought in a library and you're like, oh, this looks good. I'm going to download this and stick it on my page. Right. Do you ever, how frequently do you actually review the source and make sure it's not doing anything malicious? Right. I mean, I know I haven't always done that. 
And it was probably very irresponsible of me not to. Yeah, it takes a lot of time to be that suspicious too, Brad. <laughs> 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 you know, sitting with Fiddler open, running through this thing and saying, what other calls is it making, right? I mean, I can't tell you how long I've done stuff like Wireshark monitoring against a process just to see, is this guy making external calls? Like, what's what's, what's going, going on, on, here? on in there? Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> not, not that I'm not that cynical, because I've definitely been that cynical. But yeah, it's this is not a small thing to do. Like you just want to believe your libraries work, and it's fine. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a little bit scary, and this is why I was like, huh. Well, um, but you know, at the end of the day, though, I mean, if you follow good security practices, you can pretty much rest assured, right? I mean, there has to be an exploit in order for duck punching to happen. So. Are there any kind of low-hanging fruit things that we can toss out there to tell people to do that they may not have thought of? Uh, review the, the the libraries that you're bringing in. Make sure that they are you know reputable and they're not they don't have it, they don't contain malicious code. Right. Um, you know when you're about to launch, make sure you use a tool like Fiddler or whatever to uh, check over what are the values being sent out and make pay particular attention to like not just Ajax posts because right. you can store a lot of data in a beacon request, like a request yep. for it, for an image on a query string. Make sure you're looking at that and you know that that what those values are and why they would be sent. Is there really somebody out there who's got a website that's got my, dot, you know, awesome.js or whatever downloaded? It's cool. You know, here's how to use it and all that stuff. And it's got a Trojan horse that duck punches in it. I mean, did, are those guys actually that ballsy? Oh, for sure. Really? Like, if you want, I've, I have found um, hacked versions of jQuery in, in, in the real world that, uh, that, that steal keystrokes. Wow. Like, this is the thing that I, I have found. Um, you usually can find them on um, manipulated CDN domains. So, like, it won't be on Google CDN. Right. It'll be on a misspelling of Google CDN. Okay. Wow. Yeah. It, it's not like you're going to go to jQuery.com and download a, a Trojan. Though. No, no. Like, jQuery.com, they're, they're, they have their stuff together. If they were releasing things, that, then yeah. all kinds of bad things had happened. No, this is usually the case of either... Um, uh, an attack where somebody had caused an intentional misspelling domain or min or hacks into a maybe a vulnerable CDN or hacks directly into a valuable website's assets, um, asset hosting. That's true. Now, you could wreak havoc by changing domain names and DNS records. You certainly could do that. I mean, you know, some everybody who's linking directly to the jQuery website for the JS file, you know, or the min file, the min JS. Yep. If that uh, name gets hacked through DNS, then that's an easy vector. Yeah, it won't last long. <laughs> well, I, I also like the typo idea, right? Like, the, if you go and if you're going to use the Google API version of jQuery, so it's ajax.googleapis.com. You you know you do app is instead just reverse two letters. Somebody's registered that domain yeah. and got these Trojan versions of jQuery. Like take a while for you to catch that because it just yeah, worked, right? Right. Watch your typos. Yeah, for sure. I was speaking with a with a security researcher a couple of weeks ago, and he was telling me about this. This it's not a very common exploit, but I guess in very large data centers where there's like a lot of density and a lot of heat, DNS servers can sometimes flip bits at a very low level. 
And so what? What, when you ask for, you know, what is the IP address for, you know, Google.com, it can one time out of, you know, a couple hundred thousand or whatever, it'll, it can flip a bit and inadvertently give you the wrong address. And these wow. are certain known, val- known um, places where these bits can get flipped. And there wow. are people registering these domains that aren't a human typo, but they're a computer typo where they're, they'll register G-O-O-7-L-E.com because the, they know that the DNS server under this kind of heavy load, this is the bit it will flip and it would flip it in this way. And so if this, if your computer just got happened to get, to get this thing, uh, this malformed response, it would resolve in this way. Huh. Doesn't seem likely, but if you get back to this idea of in a script request, wouldn't it be great to have a CRC or something to know for sure that this is the JavaScript file I've fetched? Yeah, and have and have the browser validate it for you. Yeah. That would be really, really cool. And validate at the endpoint. Hmm. I'm I'm enjoying this whole line of thinking of just to, you know, how do we deal with this sort of mature this this point of view? Because it, it's true for a lot of things. There's lots of external libraries you're using. Ad network libraries, like public facing sites load a lot of stuff from a lot of places. And having some confidence that you're getting what you originally agreed to, I mean, that's the really evil thing. Even if they just updated the version, like there's no no malicious intent, they just changed the version. Yeah. You should be notified. Right? Your mm. site should know. Mm. You need a little application insight there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there's a there's a, a feature element there. It's like uh, this is the CRC, and if it fails, stop the page. Don't yeah. load the JavaScript, or continue, but send a warning, or you know, trip an error so that we can log the fact. So you know, if it's an ad network changing, you probably you know just don't load the ad network. Keep but keep the page going, as opposed to don't do anything. Right. So, all right. Well, I guess we're going. We're making pitches to W three C now, Todd. What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. I, I'll I'll file it. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Just what time it is now. It must be that happy time again. It's happy, all right. Time to shoot me some evil ducks. (laughs) Take that. (laughs) Die. Die. No duck punching allowed. Oh, yeah, but shooting them is fine, huh? Did you get him? Yeah. Oh, man. All right, that was silly. All right, sorry. It's actually time to give away Telerik DevCraft to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, Telerik DevCraft is the most complete .NET toolbox for web, mobile, and desktop development. With the addition of UI for Xamarin to the DevCraft bundle, you can create compelling native mobile experiences with your C-sharp skills. Download a free trial at tinyurl.com slash devcrafttrial. Awesome, dude. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Matt Spradley. Congratulations, Matt. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. Going to send him a frozen duck. Nice. Oh, he just won a big pile of awesome from Telerik, the Telerik DevCraft collection. If you don't know what we're doing, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. We'd like to have you, too. And every show... We give away stuff from our sponsors, and every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member, but you got to join to win. And Todd, we like to ask our guests, if you had five grand to spend today on technology, what would you buy? Whew. Does it have to be uh, computers? Technology in general, I think. Well, can a Lego? can Legos be technology? Yeah, of course. Toys. Awesome. 
So I've had this project that I wanted to do for a while now. Um, and it's just the time and the money to make it happen. I want to build a Lego model of my house. Nice. So I have this Lego haunted house that is amazing that we got for Halloween a couple of years ago. Uh-huh. And I'd like to design and then build a variant of that that looks like my house. That's a cool idea. Yeah. And then, you know, be able to like destroy it with by giant mechs or spaceships or whatever other Lego. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I did for um, my kids when, well, my my youngest daughter, is I I created a a, a sort of a, a game engine, you know, like those Infocom game engine, text games, adventure games. Yeah. And I created an adventure game of the house and, you know, sort of mapped out the house and the different rooms and stuff. And, you know, one of the, th- <laughs> one of the booby traps was dad sleeping on the couch. <laughs> you go over and wake him up. Yeah, and bad things happen. So, and then yeah. you lose. Yeah, you lose. <laughs> it was kind of funny, and she she didn't quite know what to think of it, you know, because she knew she could follow the map in her mind of up the stairs, down, you know, going to this room, that room. But uh, and it was kind of fun. But uh, that's only virtual. A Lego, a Lego version of the house would be pretty cool. Are you envisioning like you could? pull off the roof and look inside and you like set up the rooms and everything yeah so like this this lego haunted house thing i have actually has a seam down the middle so you can like unfold it in half wow and so i was thinking something like that that's cool but there's like this online lego designer out on their website where you can actually like pick out the individual parts that you want and like what color and and figure it out so part of that money would just be you know the time to like figure out what the house needs to look like so you build it virtually first and then you get shipped all the Legos you need to make it. Yeah. That is cool. Wow. Yeah, I thought it was super fun. Definitely possibilities, without a doubt. Yeah, that's a time vampire right there. <laughs> <laughs> Ask me about Kerbal Space Program. I know all about time vampires. Good yeah. Lord. That's another show. Absolutely. So, I mean, so far we've just been terrorizing our listeners with duck punching <laughs> and, and all of the security exploit risks it has. But it seems to me like this is a pretty powerful tool for doing sort of, I mean, some important stuff, aspect-oriented development, even like inversion control. I could see taking this approach and, and doing quite a bit to make better software with it. Oh, for sure. And when I first started, you know, using this technique, it, it wasn't at all for the malicious side of it. That just kind of came through our own exploration of like, oh, well, what would be possible in doing this? Right. You can do a ton of instrumentation and, and aspect-oriented stuff with this. Like one of the most common use cases that I've done with this in a lot of different projects is just adding instrumentation to Ajax. Right. And so a lot of times your, your end customers of a web app, they're not in your data center or whatever. They're on like crappy mobile connections or they're on the other side of the world or, or they're all over it. So you need some good data about how long is your application taking to make these calls from the real user perspective. And so if you already have an app, adding this instrumentation could be time consuming. You'd have to add it in a lot of different places. But you could do it in one place with duck punching by interacting with the base level XML HTTP request object. You could grab basic information about when an AJAX was sent and when it came back, throw timers on those and save those off either locally or then, you know, batch them back to your own server and gather some real metrics about how long Ajax calls are taking. Um, and so that's a, a really powerful use of duck punching. We already talked about polyfills and using that to just normalize different browsers. There's a kind of a related term called a probably fill, 
which is basically a polyfill for something that's not quite standardized yet. Maybe fill. Um, <laughs> yeah, it might be fill. A possibly fill. <laughs> and so you can do that for things like uh, like the Shadow DOM and, and some newer uh, HTML things coming along the line. You can add uh, these fills for that sort of thing. And that's all done with duck punching the basic objects. Wow. Yeah, very cool. So um, for instrumentation and for measuring your own stuff, I mean, obviously, there's tools out there, like I was talking about, you know, right at the top of the show. And Azure is not the only company that has tools. I mean, there's lots of them out there. But what can you do with duck punching that you wouldn't be able to do with an off-the-shelf diagnostics or tool or something like that? Oh, well, so a lot of these diagnostic tools will utilize this technique. It's not so much comparing mm -hmm. the, the technique to a tool. Um, sure. This is like... Um, the technique is, you know, you either, you can duck punch the base objects, you can build wrapper adapter patterns on base objects, you can do basic object construction or, or a common base layer. There, there's all kinds of different techniques you could use to accomplish this, these same things. But a lot of times a JavaScript application, people didn't take as much time and care in crafting the actual architecture of how things are related. And so the only the only guaranteed central place where you can say, I want to know every time an Ajax is sent, um, you can always just polyfill or you can always just duck punch this base level thing to add your own instrumentation there. Yeah. And not that that's better or worse than an off the shelf thing. It's a, if you wanted to do this yourself, um, because you have a specialty need or you are only going to monitor it for a couple of days, you're just debugging something, uh, you can use this technique. Um, it can also kind of go very wrong from a design perspective. Um, some people might remember there was a library that, I mean, it's still around, but it's not getting used very much anymore called Prototype.js. Mm. And it was kind of jQuery before jQuery. And they used uh, duck, duck punching as basically their primary design tool. So you didn't interact with a jQuery kind of object. You just interacted with DOM elements directly and uh, Prototype.js would just put its extensions directly onto the DOM, which caused problems as the DOM evolved and as new versions of HTML came along. There would be conflicts between what the native functionality said was supposed to happen versus what Prototype.js said was supposed to happen. So you get into kind of a mess if you overuse duck punching for um, a design technique in building your application. But if you use just tiny bits of it, I feel like the real sweet spots of it are in polyfills and instrumentation. Yeah. Um, you can get a lot of power out of it. Mm. What happens if you do have two different calls to punch the same object? Ah, the last one wins. Uh-oh. That's when we get into what, uh, what some people have called gorilla patching. Not gorilla G-O, gorilla G. G-U-E. Yeah, that gorilla. Where the, the patches are fighting each amongst themselves at production time <laughs> about, because whoever goes in last is the one that wins. And if your patches aren't, uh, respectful, if they don't pass through to the underlying code correctly, you can just cut a particular patch out entirely. You could change the behavior of a patch. You could end up with kind of a mess. Well, and you're not going to necessarily get an error or anything. Like you're just not going to, it's just not going to be called. That something's not going to run. It just might not be called or it might just behave in a way you don't expect that right. isn't an error. It's just that's not what the function. You ch Somebody along the line changed the function to do something else. Yikes. Yeah. No, I could definitely. You, you, and this is where like doing this for overall instrumentation could get really hazardous because anytime you do it for anything else, like you'd get weird behavior. 
stuff doesn't get logged, you know, security validations don't get done, like, boy, it could get ugly fast. Oh, for sure, for sure. And if you were starting with a greenfield project, I wouldn't recommend duck punching as like a good mechanism to do it. This is kind of a technique for, you know, working with legacy JavaScript applications, I would say, is that if you're going to build your app from scratch, and you know you have instrumentation needs, I would build your own base data level that adds your own instrumentation in and just all of your code calls through your own data level so that you know what expectations right. to set there. But if you already have an app that is, you know, several ten thousands of lines of code and you need to add this functionality to it, duck punching could be an appropriate technique to get in there and, and add some commonality. Right. Yeah. Use with caution sparingly and argue, one would even argue temporarily too. Like you, you could slip it, you could slip in a catch on the uh, XML HTTPS to catch timings. And I'm presuming I could gather enough information around a given call to actually be able to identify the call. Hmm. But once I had proof that, you know, logging this stuff is valuable, now we could have a whole conversation about let's do better logging. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you know, I feel the same way. When we've had conversations about aspect-oriented developing before, the same sort of thing has come up. This is a great way to demonstrate the value of a particular feature quickly and easily, like logging. Right. But it's not a long-term solution. Like, it'll, it'll, it, that will eventually bite you. Yeah. For sure, for sure. And so, whenever you're doing this, like, my kind of cardinal rule I have about whenever you're doing this is to be super obvious about it. Because you're changing, it's like if you're to go in and just change how the .NET framework acts at some base level function, no new developer, even yourself, wouldn't remember that you made this change months from now. Right. right. But yet yeah. it's happening at this low level that isn't obvious in any of your code. Oh, the potential for practical jokes is endless. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Practicaljoke.js. Download it now. <laughs> Somebody's going to do that. Show a graphic of a sheep every time the user clicks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or just, you know, little wave files play or MP3 files play. Help me. Help me. <laughs> uh oh. Yep. Carl's working on a whole bunch of hobby projects just like that. <laughs> so, is this something you're using in production anywhere, Todd? Yeah, but it's, uh, it, it's not the normal thing that a lot of people would build. So, for my own company, we are in this analytics space where we track uh, JavaScript errors and other interesting information that is happening in client-side applications. And so we we take advantage of this, of duck punching for our client-side library that we ship and is in production all over, um, where we're listening to all kinds of interesting things. As far as like a larger app, like a like an app that would actually ship on its own as a, as a front-end UI... Like you said, I might use this temporarily for, you know, some instrumentation here or there when I'm trying to gather information, but right. I, I, I have not used this in sort of a large form design um, principle of how to construct the app because of the concerns about um, obviousness of the design and complexity and maintainability of it is really just not there. It's kind of a niche feature or a niche use case around doing this that I think is really interesting. And a lot of people don't understand the full power of it. Right. Well, and it's exciting. You're in it writing this code that's hidden away from the code that it affects. Even if you're trying to be obvious, it's hard. Like, it's very easy to end up hiding all of that, and, and people just don't know that you've done it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, I, in SQL Server, there's a thing called triggers. 
And triggers can do that too. It's like yep. every time you insert a record, I want you to run this other piece of code. Surprise! Yeah. And if you don't know where to look, you don't even know it was happening. You get the same effect with extension methods at C Sharp too. Sure. Like you, you can fool yourself pretty easily with that. Yeah, there's lots of ways you can fool yourself or others. Is that the rule then? Duck punching. It's your foot. <laughs> no, it's, yeah, that's right. It's your memory. <laughs> you better remember what you did, you know? Yeah, definitely a trap. Definitely. Well, uh, are you, you do some talks on this. Obviously, you were talking about it at, uh, at NDC London. Uh, yeah. any, any place online where we can go take a look at uh, some code or some resources? Yeah, I'll drop you a link. Um, I think my talk out at NDC London on this topic was recorded. Um, and then I do have some example code that shows both the instrumentation examples and then the polyfill examples and the malicious examples of how to go about and do that. And those are all linked to um, off of my GitHub page. Um, I'm Todd H. Gardner on GitHub and the repo is called Duck Punch. What is this notepad conf thing all about? <laughs> notepad conf. Um, so notepad conf is a conference for uh, plain text enthusiasts and notepad.exe users. And it's all about all of the amazing things that Notepad has given us. You know, there are simple text editors that are way better than Notepad, right? Blasphemy, sir. Blasphemy. <laughs> That's me, Carl the Blasphemer. <laughs> <laughs> So Notepad Comp started um, because I was working for a client and uh, and they had sent me this this survey. They sent out a, a, a knowledge survey to all of their resources because I was a resource. Uh, they'd sent out this survey of like, tell us about all of the technologies you know and rate your expertise. <laughs> and so buried, you know, several pages deep in this survey was Microsoft no. Notepad. No. It was. Really? It was. Yeah, somewhere after uh, things like Bluetooth cabling and uh, oh Microsoft Calculator and Front Page and Dreamweaver and all of these ridiculous things, wow, um, was Microsoft Notepad. And and I admit I, I got a little angry and I might have rage tweeted a bit about how the whole thing was ridiculous. Um, but a couple of the Microsoft evangelists. Uh, in my area, bless their heart, they uh, they picked up on the whole thing and they just kind of pushed it along um, <laughs> and, and said, "Well, well, clearly they just need you to be the the, the Notepad MVP." I was gonna say, "Is are you a Notepad MVP? Is that where we're going?" I, I'm a contender. <laughs> after, <laughs> after Notepad Conf, I am definitely a contender. I mean, I know the technology inside and out, and I am like the the organizer of this preeminent Notepad conference. I think I suggested to you that in the C developer kit somewhere, there's a sample of a text editor that is pretty much Notepad. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, you could use that, and I I can't remember where it was or where I saw it, but somebody's going to know. And you could use that as a springboard to rewrite Notepad if you want. And then you could modify it to your heart's content. But it's perfect the way it is. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy talk. Well, so I was out at, uh, I was out at CodeMash a couple weeks ago, and I did a lightning talk on, uh, on Notepad. Uh, notepad conf 
and uh, I announced that we're going to do another conference for Notepad Conf. We the last one was held in November in uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota. Wait, 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 wait! You actually held a conference on using Notepad? Oh, for sure. Well, I mean, it was at the bar. Oh, okay. <laughs> that, that makes it okay makes all it right okay that's not a conference that's a get together that's a drink <laughs> <laughs> well so we're gonna do another one of whatever you want to call this okay. this spring um but it's gonna we're gonna call it notepad live and it's gonna be about all of the things that are coming in notepad for windows 10 <laughs> <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> oh my goodness wow Oh, I'm uh, I'm reading the uh, the abstracts here. Syntax highlighting is for suckers. <laughs> Advanced pasting techniques. I don't need no control X. <laughs> <laughs> ASCII art in Notepad. <laughs> Too much, man. All right. Well, I think that just about does it. That's. Uh, is there anything else you want to talk about, Todd? No, I think I'm all good. All right. Well, maybe we'll catch you next year in London or sometime before then. I hope so. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a